Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction books. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with author Howard Michael Gould, whose latest novel, Air Play, is being published by Severn House, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Howard. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Sure. Would you start us off by reading a brief excerpt from the book? Sure. I should probably just uh, tell a little bit who the characters are so that it'll make a little more sense. Uh, My main character, my detective, Charlie Waldo, has been punishing himself for a case in the past that went wrong by becoming an almost maniacal environmentalist. He won't do any more harm even to the planet. So he has all these rules. The biggest one, which will come into play here, you'll see, is that he only allows himself to own 100 things. His bowl is a thing. His fork is a thing. His shirt is a thing. And another recurring character in the series is a drug trafficker named Don Q, who's been very uh, judgmental in earlier chapters about how much reality TV Waldo watches. So here we go. Don Q approached, and Waldo cleared his bag off the bench. The dealer laid a copy of the L.A. Times on the seat between them. Waldo said, where's your gorilla? Nini, said Don Q, getting himself some also buco. I can't believe the shit they sell on food trucks now. Waldo looked over. The Inuit stood at the end of a long line for the one called Veals on Wheels. Don Q sniffed in Waldo's direction. You've been eating Mexicano? Waldo nodded, then said, Thanks for meeting me downtown. Made things easier for me. Man, 2G a day, I ain't doing shit to be easier for you. This worked for me. Just so happened I got things to do around here anyway. There was a bullet-headed man looking their way from across the park. Waldo didn't know the guy, but his suit yawped FBI. Wanted to catch my dude Mel, too, and L.A. Phil, but my timing was off. Yes, definitely watching them. Waldo nodded acknowledgement. The Fed cold-stared back. Look, Waldo said, I don't want to know about your friends, especially their names. Fuck you talking about. Your dude Mel, Phil, whoever. L.A. Phil, Philharmonic, Gustavo Dudamel's the motherfucking conductor, but it ain't symphony season what I'm trying to tell you. Don Q shook his head. You know, Waldo, you wouldn't be such a Philistine. You wasn't turning your brain to cream of wheat on fucking Judge Ida Mudge. Don Q looked away again. 6G in an envelope, MacBook's in there too. You tell me what you know, then I'm going to walk away. You're going to carry the paper just like that. Don't remove the items till you're on your bus and halfway back to Podunk. The computer was a thing, and the newspaper was a thing, and the envelope with the money was a thing, although he didn't intend to accept the cash, and if he left the cash in the envelope, then it was only two things. But he also had to give Don Q back the burner flip phone, which the dealer would probably tell him to toss. But since Waldo obviously wasn't going to dump all that lead and copper into a trash can to be hauled to a landfill... That meant he had to hang on to it until he found a trustworthy e-waste collection site, which would throw off his day and still leave him with a hundred and first thing. In fact, a hundred and second until he recycled the newspaper. Fuck your mind out, Waldo. You going to tell me what you got or what? Thank you for that. You've talked about the characters. Can you put this conversation in the context of the book without spoiling the plot? Uh, Yeah. 
early in the book, and this is actually the secondary story in, in the book, but it's, it's one of the first things that happens, is that Don Q, who's this uh, drug trafficker with whom Waldo has a very complicated history of favors and threats, and there have been some deaths in there too, uh, shows up wanting him, wanting to hire him actually to do some work for him to figure out what happened to a homeless man who was found drowned in a mini mall fountain in two inches of water. And it was just a mystery that the cops wrote off as an accidental drowning. And Waldo doesn't know why he wants to know this information, but he's not very comfortable working for him. But then again, like I say, there are threats and complications. So he starts down the road. And you said that this is sort of a, a secondary plot. Can you just sort of tease the main plot a little bit again without giving too much away? Oh, sure. Uh, there's a character. One of the things I found about this series, starting with the first book, I had a great sort of second lead character. I'm sure we'll get to talking about the movie uh, of that, which is going to come out soon. Uh, anyway, this is to say that character in the movie will be played by Mel Gibson. It's it's such a strong role, even though it's a second lead. And one of the things that I decided as I chose to extend this as a series was that I wanted always to have a very strong sort of special guest star. And in this one, it's a TV judge like a Judge Judy type, except it's on streaming where anything goes. And it's sort of a a cross between Judge Judy and Jerry Springer. So it's sort of a foul, tawdry, completely addictive show, which has made her such a big star that she's gotten an offer for a Judge Judy size contract, which and this is one of the things that I, I just couldn't resist one, that writing about once I, I read what Judge Judy used to make on her old show, which was almost $50 million a year, which is about a million dollars a week, of course. And she would shoot five episodes in one day, which meant Judge Judy was getting paid a million dollars a day to be Judge Judy. And I thought, well, if I have a character like that, but just a little more salty and, and spicy, uh, that character would be a great target for blackmail. So it's a blackmail case, and that's uh, part of where the title Pay or Play comes from. And could you sort of go back a little bit in time and talk about how you came to start the Waldo series? Well, well, actually, this all happened kind of backwards. I've had a long career in Hollywood as a, a writer and producer and director and TV showrunner, mostly in comedies in television. Uh, but I had started writing some dramas and getting hired to write detective dramas with comedy in them. And in looking for one to go pitch, I came up with this character of Waldo, uh, partly inspired by a video called The Story of Stuff, which uh, was really about how we were destroying the planet in pursuit of a, a planned consumerism, which was also making us miserable. And I got kind of obsessed by that and went out and uh, pitched this character as a show and didn't have any luck selling it then. But about a year and a half later, a movie producer came to me and said, we'd like to hire you to write some detective thing with comedy. I wrote it as a movie. And then we started running into the usual difficulty of getting an independent film up and going. But I loved the character and the story so much that I got the rights back and wrote it as a novel, sold that right away. And 
in the aftermath of that, the movie happened. And I, I just enjoyed it so much, and it was sort of so nicely received by critics and readers that I decided to write a second, and now here's a third, and I'm working on a fourth. So um, you spoke about you know the inspiration, uh, ironically enough, giving your character sort of being a thing rather than a person. Is there any person that, at least in part, inspired the character of Waldo? Is there any part of you in him? There are definitely parts of me in him that, that one of my kids, uh, my daughter, uh, <laughs> points to um, sort of... Uh, Bits of obsessive compulsiveness, I guess. But Waldo is a, a much more devotedly good person than I am. Although readers sometimes, I guess, assume that you must be the character. I'll, I'll get the occasional email from someone who says, I'm halfway through the book and I'm loving it, but I have to ask you, do you really do all this stuff? Because Waldo, in addition to the things, he won't drive a car, he, he's, uh, he won't eat any food that's been packaged. He's so, uh, so set on keeping a zero environmental uh, footprint. Right. And uh, I, shortly before the, the scene you, you read to us, I, I believe that when he orders tacos from a food truck, he wants to eat it on the counter rather than have a paper plate be used. Right. That way. Right. And then has to talk uh, one of the guys on the food truck into tossing him a dirty towel to wipe his hands because he doesn't want to use napkins, paper napkins. I think if I'm remembering correctly, when I looked on your website, you actually refer to him as ecomaniacal. I do. You know, that's not mine. I want to I want to give credit. That was um, that was uh, William Kent Kruger's okay. take on him. And it came from a blurb he gave me. And he's been a great champion of these books. And, and so I want to give a shout out to him because he's one of my favorite authors as well. So is there a way in which his uh, echomania, his uh, feeling of you know global responsibility uh shapes the way he investigates crime well it it limits what he's able to do i mean and this this was going back to the original thought of why this would be a a good tv series is just the simple kind of thing as happens in the first book if somebody hands him a business card to be able to get in touch and he can't take it you know and in the this new book uh because it's about an old case, I, I might kick this in here too. So it's a blackmail over something that happened 35 years ago in college. There was a fraternity hazing death that probably went under investigated. And one of the things that was interesting to me, having gone to a fancy small liberal arts school in the 1980s, was seeing the way people sort of shot out into the world and to very interesting roles in public life or private life or in the ensuing years. But as Waldo has to go track those people down, he's got to figure out how to get from place to place in the most environmentally responsible, over-responsible way. So that's, it's just the little things of the fabric of his day that, that make investigation more difficult or at least overly self-conscious. So uh, this is the first in the series that I've read, as I mentioned to you before we went on. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading the first two. Thank you. And I guess given how important ethics are to him and how important, you know, doing the right thing is and that sort of level of seriousness that, you know, I guess in the real world might border 
or cross the border into the off-putting. Um, <laughs> it was a little surprising that he became addicted to this, you know, reality courtroom show. And I'm wondering what part of his character that sort of tapped into or appealed to. You know, it's it's funny. It's just an old writing trick. My wife says to stop saying things like this because it's 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 like the magician showing his hand. But it's an old writing trick to make a character more interesting and dimensional by giving them an aspect which is very different from who they are. I know uh, a famous person, an actor, who's a very, very, very gentle person in real life, but who absolutely loves cage fighting for example, you know, and uh, I was trying to find something like that uh, when I was first developing Waldo. I don't remember if it was in the movie versions or came in the book, but I wanted to give him something about himself that was not something he'd necessarily be proud of, but which was basically harmless. And so allowing himself one hour a day of just the junkiest TV was kind of fun. And in the first book, he was watching things like the show Man vs. Food and, and watching somebody eat a 12 patty hamburger, something like that, which is so the opposite of, of Waldo, who was watching that while he was eating the salad that he picked from his own self-sustaining garden. So you spoke about the origin of the, the concept that, that led into the book series. Did you back then when you were pitching it as a series or did you, when it, it morphed into a book series, uh, have an arc for the character, a sense more than a book ahead of, you know, where he'd be going, what would be happening in his personal life, or is it more sort of book to book? It's really book to book, which it's, it, that's interesting. Nobody's ever asked me that question. Um, it's surprising, I guess, no one's asked me that question. I'm, I'm a very, very, very thorough planner within the book. I'll spend half a year or more working out the story before I actually get to the chapter writing, which will take me another half a year or more. But I don't really, except for some vague notions of where it might go, I don't really plan ahead. And then as I'm finishing one, I start sort of making notes about the things in my life that I'm most interested in or ideas I might have for characters and then just push those around until they sort of start to feel like things that would fit together into a story. Uh, but that's where it sort of surprises me is, is what happens to him next a year or two down the road from the last time I went through that exercise. So for an interviewer, it's always good if you can come up with a question that hasn't been asked before. <laughs> and I realized as I was looking at my notes, I have a a go-to question that I tease one of my daughters about whenever I see other interviewers use it. Um, as the series has, you know, evolved and changed, apart from maybe the specifics of a plot of a, of a book, is there something that surprised you the most about how this has all played out? <laughs> what I want to say is that now, so in, in, the, in the fourth book, I'm actually bringing back that actor character uh, that that sort of uh, vivid guest from the first book, wh whom Mel Gibson played in the movie. And of course, Charlie Hunnam, maybe I haven't mentioned this, plays Waldo in the movie. And what's very, very different is those 
those characters when I wrote them first, which is almost 10 years ago when I wrote it as a movie first and, and five or six years ago when I was first writing it as, as a book in, in, in a much fuller version, they were kind of amorphous. Uh, Alistair Pinch is the actor character, and I was writing Richard Burton. <laughs> and now as I'm writing him again, I, I can't help but picture Mel. And uh, Charlie Hunnam is actually originally British, though he's lived on this side of the Atlantic for half his life. And, and so he has a, a sort of interesting kind of mid-Atlantic, I guess you'd call it, accent. And sometimes that creeps into Waldo in my head, which wasn't there before. So uh, I, I'd say that's the, the biggest change, the biggest thing that I'm feeling as I, as I write the first uh, installment post-film life. And so... Let's talk a little bit about the film. Uh, this is coming out, uh, knock on wood, uh, February of next year. Is that right? Or Definitely early in the year. Uh, I was just told <laughs> by the distributor that I should just say early in the new year. And I'm not supposed to say who the distributor is yet either because they haven't made the official announcement. So I don't want to break any news. So could you talk a little bit? I don't know if you, if what your involvement in the screenplay was. But given that whatever your involvement was in the screenplay of the movie that was made, you had previously involvement in it. What's the difference or the different challenges of blending a mystery slash thriller plot, you know, with heavy elements of humor in prose versus in a script for TV or the movies? That's a great question, too. And it's funny because I've, I've been thinking about this a lot lately as I as I, I start the process of talking about the book again, right? I haven't done this in a couple of years since the last one came out. When I wrote it as a movie, that all felt very natural to me. So I, uh, I, I guess I, I'm, I'm organically a comedy writer, right? That's, that's where my plays brought me into the sitcom world and then into writing features uh, of different types of comedies, mostly dramas with comedies or comedies that were sort of very uh, grounded. And when I wanted to write this script, I designed it just as a drama. I, I worked it all out. I, I wanted it to stand as that. And then scene by scene, find what was going to be funny about it to pull it along because that was just what made work interesting to me. And that was, it was a, it was a great, great challenge because they were all essentially dramatic scenes. For example, in the, in the second or third chapter of the first book, a bunch of guys come and warn Waldo to stay off a case that he's not even involved in and beat him up a little bit. And we've seen that kind of scene many times. I use a lot of very familiar detective fiction and detective movie tropes in that first one, especially. But then I had to come up with what's going to make that funny. And so I came up with that these were a bunch of young white guys from a, a, a rich L.A. suburb who were trying to act like they were black and talked like Snoop Dogg, even though that was a few years out of fashion. And that was the comic motor for that scene. And so when I ended, when I finished the script, I had all of these different comedic ideas that didn't exactly fit right, but did a bunch of draft after draft after draft after draft, which is what I do. And 
by the end, by the time I was ready to turn it in, it really felt all of a piece. Then when it was time to write it as a book, I had not written fiction, uh, prose fiction, in whatever it was, 30-something years since I was a teenager, really. And, you know, I found the voice for it pretty quickly. And I, I want to say it's, it's because it was the only voice I had. It didn't take a lot of thought to do that. It was just kind of what came out. And I was working backwards from what was what was there is a film that felt very natural to me. But the, the strange result of that is that I don't think that there's a lot like it in the crime fiction category, uh, which I just had not occurred to me. Most people who write crime novels do it because they love crime novels. And they say, you know, I want to write a book like a Harlan Coben book or a Lee Child book or, or a, James Lee Burke or William Kent Kruger book, and, and that's they know what they're swimming towards, or Carl Hyacin book. And I was just doing this other thing <laughs> because it was it was the stuff that I had. And I don't think there are a lot of books that are uh, that are as comedic, but also would stand as mysteries as these do if you were to somehow strip out all the comedy. And it's a, it it makes it harder to do but it's kind of the only thing I know how to do now. <laughs> so um, any prospect of more movie adaptations of the series? I'll just say that everybody who is involved in it, uh, and I was involved all through to, to your earlier point. I, I was the writer with it all the way beginning to end, and I was on set for most of it. Uh, everybody wants to come back and do it again. The, you know, Charlie Hunnam and the other actors and, and the director and the producer. And I guess, you know, we now have to see what the fortunes of the movie are out in the world in this new post pandemic world where I don't even know what happens with movies exactly. If it goes well, though, I, I, I would uh, think the chances of us coming back and doing another one are very good because everybody feels very good about what, what we made. It's a good movie. Well, as I said, I'm looking forward to uh, catching up on the prior books and doing that before I uh, hopefully get to see it in the theaters. So thank you again for your time today, Howard, and thank you, listeners. Uh, the book, again, is Howard Michael Gould's Pay or Play, published by Severn House. Please join us again soon for the next LitCast.